0: Back to Movies with Kane and Tal. I hope you're doing well wherever you are in the world. I hope you're coping with whatever system has been forced upon you in the midst of this global pandemic. Good time to watch movies, good time to listen to some podcasts. So, as long as there's internet, we will continue to bring you our weekly double features as we always do. Kicking off today with Welcome to Whoop Whoop, followed by two hands. Bayonets. That's those fucking stabby things they used in World War One and I couldn't think of the name of before. Right, okay. Came to me while I was making my coffee.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have to admit, I I am having a good mental visual of you just making your coffee in the middle of halfway through (laughs) pouring in and you're just like, bayonets! That's
0: what it was! It was pretty much like that. I was like, fuck! (laughs) Jesus! Anywho, um so even though these are you you can you you hear me all right
1: yeah i can hear you can you hear me
0: yeah yeah perfectly there was just some weird noises but can you hear that no no don't worry don't worry so even though these will be released a week apart um we are recording them like 15 minutes apart and so we're going from Pretty morbidly depressing to, well, quite the other end. Morbidly
1: hilarious.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. All right. So you chose Welcome to Whoop Whoop. I've picked Two Hands and Welcome to Whoop Whoop. I think, if we're going to go based on our regular programming, um, came out maybe a year before Two Hands.
1: Uh, two years
0: Two years, okay So that makes it the older slash classic film And Two Hands the uh, more modern film Looks like a good spot to insert the trailer here Welcome to Whoop Whoop I'm just a girl it's too dry, too hot, no. too many bloody flies But it's ours It's Australia Our first breakie with my new hubby My not your husband I'm not married.
1: Will you wait till you see the photos? Stand
0: up, you duffer. Whap me in the head. Head in the gate. Honeymoon is totally unacceptable. You asked me. Well, I don't think On so. On the beach,
1: you said. What did
0: I say? I love you. <laughs> I want you to be happy here, Teddy. That's my prayer. <laughs> as far as the seven
1: o'clock news goes, whoop whoop doesn't exist, and that's the way we like it. Nobody leaves here without my permission, and that permission is never given. So. yeah and, and as much as like uh, welcome to warp warp did not get a lot of love from the critics like to this day it's one of the it, it's one of those movies where if people say they like it it's largely like you know it, it's so good it's, it's so bad it's good kind of affairs which
0: yeah. i think okay. To so, an extent, I uh, forget, but... Okay, so we're, 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 we're leading with Welcome to warp war? Yep. Okay, right. And, all right. <sighs> okay, I just need to <clears throat> compose myself. Okay, I'm ready. Go.
1: <laughs> all right, <laughs> so um, I, I, I want to talk about the opening first for this, because it is a serious, like, microcosm of what the film is ultimately going for in terms of like um, um, like the main guy who's like this bird smuggler in America and he's bringing all these cockatoos in and just the scene where um, like the, the cockatoos escape and then everyone on the street pulls out their guns and tries shooting at them. Like <laughs> that is that, that is like peak... What Australia thinks America is like, yeah. like it's, it's a, the kind of thing that you can only pages, see yeah. from, yeah. Which itself is interesting because th- this film was based on a book by Douglas Kennedy, an American okay. writer.
0: I've got, who I've got a small interrupter? What do you want? I want. A, I need to do a wee and I want some. And I want some, I want some water. Okay. Well, you can go and do a wait, and.
1: I'll get you some water. Sorry,
0: Kane. All good. Hold that thought. Oh, okay. Right.
1: Yeah, the thing we often get into is the friction between Australia and America. And as I'll get into once Tali comes back, this is a really beautiful example of that, quite honestly. Um, in in terms of just like you know we you know we stereotype America as you know they all love guns they all love them cheeseburgers and over and they stereotype us as like the kind of people who ride kangaroos to work and drink Fosters even though I'm not even sure if it's actually sold over here because that, that's kind of what we do if we have subpar products we send it over to people dumb enough to buy it. <laughs> I also do explain Jim Jeffries being around? <laughs>
0: Okay. I'm back. Yeah, So, yes, we think everybody in America has guns and, well. Yeah. And so the well, between panic buying here in Australia, which is toilet paper and the panic buying that they're doing in the states, which is lining up around the corner for bullets for their guns. Um, maybe they had a point. <laughs> yes. And
1: considering the original book this was based on, which... Oh, yeah. Looking into it, it's almost like this proto Wolf Creek situation, where it's about a journalist who goes mm-hmm. travelling in the Australian outback and mm-hmm. gets kidnapped by Angie and brought into the remote town. So, uh, which almost reads like, you know, on the flip side, what America thinks Australia is like. Mm-hmm. So, it, so I personally read that opening as kind of its own little fuck you. To the source material, like you're going to caricature us. Well, don't be surprised if we return in kind, kind of thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, that wasn't the only thing that they did to the source material. Yes, my son, you're going to eat that. Okay, good idea. Sorry. <laughs> Hopefully, that will be the last of him. Corn cob should keep him occupied for a little while. Um, yeah, I think I think this film is about as close to the source material as maybe. Um, Let's say, what's that movie? Uh, Clueless is to Emma. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair
1: <laughs> enough. I, I, I can easily see that, but 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 at the same time, like this really is the kind of film that, like you know, screw only the Aussies could make. Only Stephen Elliott, mm-hmm. the guy who made um Priscilla, uh, who made Priscilla. And also, I'm um, swinging Safari a couple of years ago, which yeah. I love. I love purely for the fact that it might be the goriest non-horror movie I've ever sat through. <laughs> really weird thing. But 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 like because like all the different things that come into this thing, like you've got a bit of that proto Wolf Creek Australian tourist gets kidnapped and brought into this really fucked up situation that's almost like like the Outback Texas Chainsaw Massacre and how just weird the central, like, communal, quote-unquote, family situation is. Mm -hmm. And, and, And add to that, like, all the Rodgers and Hammerstein footage slash soundtrack used in the thing. Like, it's such a bizarre aesthetic, but with the kind of, like, really dark and, well, fucked up in many ways story that is being told here, it kind of fits, in its own way, like, it's a kind of weirdness that engenders more weirdness. Which, for a story like this, really helps.
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, um, I had a real issue uh, watching this. I I got about halfway through it, and I was... Well, frankly, I was pissed off. Um, oh, right know. <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't quite figure out what they were aiming to do and what it was about like it just it just it was so i don't know and i and and it's really weird it was it was a really weird experience for me because as anyone who's listened to this podcast or anybody who knows me knows i'm a huge fan of australian films and i am australian and i understand australian humor and i feel like I have a very um, good grasp of Australian culture. But this really threw me for a loop for the first half of the film and I nearly seriously didn't watch the rest of it. I, I really had to drag myself through it. Um, I think I was particularly put off um, after she kid he, Angie kidnaps him and, and um, there's another guy in the car and he gets out of the car and then, Old mates like so. What's all that about it? And she says that's just some weird abo shit. And I just like I couldn't. Yeah, I really couldn't feel, uh, and I wasn't. I, yeah,
1: I I have to admit I was expecting that to a degree, but it it is kind of like what um how to put it it, it I. I initially had a problem as well with the whole thing with angie basically doing what i'll what i'll call caveman wedding like just bash mm-hmm. him over the head and suddenly wake up and he's married mm-hmm. but um and but for two reasons i kind of like steered away from my usual um worries of like if the genders were switched people would be freaking out a lot more about this stuff but what what kind of pulled me away from that is one th- these townspeople are clearly meant to be like Insane. They're in the wrong. We're not watching this thinking, oh, we're supposed to sympathise with them. No, no. We're supposed to see this as, well, basically, daddy-o like running the town, running this really isolated town. Yeah, but and, I um, hadn't got to that
0: part yet. So, like, I was still, like, you know, I'd watched this reasonably funny opening scene where they'd shot at all the birds and stuff, and you know. Then he'd ended up in this outback town, and, and, I, and all I'd gotten to, they're in the combi and they're driving, and, 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 and Old Mate gets out of the car. And Angie says that. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on here, but that's just throwing me for a loop. And I think I just, I was like, I can't. And when they got to the town and, they, and they got, I got through the wedding, and then I just paused and I left it for a couple of days, and I was like, I've got to go back and watch the rest of that film, but it's really fucking pissing me off. I came back. And I watched the end of it and I got to the end and I was like, okay, I get it, I do. And, and I understand that this was a piss take. Yes, you're right, these people are insane, we're not supposed to be sympathising with them. I guess um, I still, even when he did his whole spiel about, you know, my dad um, got blown up in that asbestos mine over there and we're all dying of mesothelioma and, you know, we just been left out here in the middle of nowhere and then they tried to make some reference to the blackfellas didn't even want this land and so that kind of makes it all okay like there was just all this stuff and i was like okay guys this really fucking isn't working i really am sorry but it didn't work and for once um And As you know, I I generally don't try to do much research about these films. I usually just come in to have a chat with you and let you tell me who directed it and who wrote it and what other movies they've made and all that kind of stuff. But I actually looked into this because I was genuinely puzzled as to how this film came to be and why there was a bit of a cult following behind it because really I just found the whole thing quite offensive. I didn't even feel like, I don't know. Anyway... I read up about it, and I don't know if you uh, know this, but he was coming off, uh, Elliot was coming off the success of um, hugely um, successful and unexpectedly successful Priscilla Queen in the Desert. And so the producers took the film to Cannes and they played it for the audience there in its three-hour entirety when it hadn't been edited down to what he sort of wanted and people got up and walked out and those who did make it to the end of the film just just bombed it with bad (laughs) reviews like like, Um, absolutely um and so
1: um I had read up a little bit on this. Apparently, like, Steve Elliott was really not comfortable with that going on (laughs) with the unfinished version being shown. And and I totally do get it. And I I could probably take a guess at what, like, the, the extended version looked like in terms of, like, what scenes would still be in there. And it would probably just be more examples of the people of Whoop Whoop being as... Both literally and thematically inbred.
0: Oh, the, look. <laughs> so, he said the yeah. stuff that was cut out of the film is. He said, he said, if you think that's bad, you should see the stuff that was cut out of the film. So basically, what happened was after that Khan situation, they came back in damage control. The producers came in and they took, took, took over. And they edited it and they changed it from what it was originally meant to be. Remember this happened with Kangaroo Jack? We talked about how, like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically the same thing happened. They hacked it to pieces, they stitched it together and they released it and, and then tried to pretend it never happened. And Stephen Elliott lost complete control of the film. He said it's haunted him his whole life, still up until now. But he has a very um, strong desire and he said, if I ever get the money and the metal together to, to sort it out, I'm going to re-release the film that was supposed to be made. Because this was supposed to be a real serious look at the endemic racism and just bigotry and backwardness of Australians. It was supposed to be a proper fucking piss take. They had actually tried, seriously tried to cast Pauline Hanson as daddy O's wife.
1: Holy shit. I would give everything to see that movie. (laughs) Holy shit.
0: He said he actively pursued her for months and the producer said, no fucking way are we letting you put her in there. And he was like, but this is the point I'm trying to make. These people, they're Hanson's people. And see, without that context, without hearing from him, What he, what his idea for the film was, and seeing this slapdash edit of it that the producers wanted to put out, I just found the whole thing offensive and weird. And I have to admit, uh,
1: now you've mentioned it, that context definitely would have helped the movie. It it definitely would have helped make a bit more sense of just like you know going beyond them all being like really insular in this almost pre-Brexit kind of situation, but.
0: He wanted yeah. to go full, like, you know, you were talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He wanted to go almost full, like, deliverance level. Like, it, he said, this, the stuff that we cut out is so, like, you know, vulgar and just confronting. Like, I really wanted to, to, to take a real stab at it. And the reason is, is because after Priscilla, he said, I wanted to put more stuff in Priscilla about the Outback mentality towards like drag queens and, you know, the LBT, the, sorry, I always get that acronym wrong, community. He said they actually got into a proper brawl in um, Broken Hill when they were filming that. And he had wanted to put heaps more of that really um, murky undertone into Priscilla and, and he wasn't allowed to. And he was like, right, with this film, I'm just going to go full throttle on my sort of ideas about Australia and this really murkiness that we have here under the surface. And it only takes a little bit to kind of scratch it. And so he, when they found the source material, he was like, okay, this can be like, you know, the, the underpinning of it, but we're really going to bring out this thing. And then the producers, with, with what happened at Cannes, it was just a disaster. And then they, they took it out of his hands and he never got to make the point he was trying to make. And so when it got released in the cinemas, that's why hardly anyone's ever even heard of it because people just went and saw it and went, I don't even know what I just watched. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah,
1: uh, and, and to Billy, that was my reaction too because it is just that fucking weird. But yeah. uh, um, I, actually, um, uh, sorry, just um, th- th- this point really did stick with me. I want to talk about Angie specifically for a
0: minute. Yep.
1: Um, Now, this specific, like, character type, like, this really overtly quirky, like, really this strange female love interest, Mm. there's an actual name for this specific kind of character. Mm. It's um, the manic pixie dream girl. It's basically, like, the go-to like, indie rom-com way of writing romantic interests. But with this, because of how, like, overt it was, both in, like, the sexuality involved mm. and in just how, like, proper insane her and her background is, it felt like a deconstruction of, like, what this kind of person would be in real life. Like, it's, she's not endearing. No. She's batshit and scary. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, not... totally. Totally. Yep. And I think, again, for this whole section of the podcast, all I'm going to be able to say is, I really hope that one day Stephen Elliott decides to, to actually go back and give us what he wanted, because I think that there were a lot more of those subtle points that he was trying to draw out here about you know, the film industry in general about the way we portray characters about Australia, about a whole bunch of different stuff that just didn't work because it was cut to shreds. So, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think there's a lot of un... points that were, were unable to be made in this movie in there unless you're really looking for it. Um, I think that it would just go over most people's heads, and I think that, that the reason it's become a cult classic is like what you said in the beginning: is that it's a "it's so bad it's good" type film. But I really don't think that's what he was going for.
1: And and after hearing all of this, I definitely agree on that point. But with me, my, like in terms of him like releasing the intended version, the um, hashtag release the Elliot edit
0: <laughs> yeah. situation
1: like my my whole stance in regards to stuff like that is well in order for like me to be interested in like an extended director's cut of anything there has to be enough like raw potential in you know the original lopsided release for me to go you know what what, if stuff were fleshed out here this could really work and that's part of the reason why i'm very apathetic in regards to like the Snyder cut, because I honestly don't think there's anything that could save Justice League from being the very dull production it is. But with this, because I can see so many little bits of like what, now that you've explained it, the original intent of the thing, I'm like, you know what? I easily see this fleshing out into something I like even more, because even with how lopsided it is and how thinking back on it there is definitely a disconnect in areas as far as what you know the film is actually trying to say I have to admit I still really dug the hell out of it mainly because of just how uniquely strange the whole thing is like again I can like even though Stephen Elliott's you know vision was compromised I still can't separate this from being like anything other than the kind of movie only he would be capable of making in the first place
0: yeah and i guess that's a, a point as well and i probably would have written it off completely having not sort of read that very extended article actually that film inc did with um with him article yes article um and with his previous and post movies he obviously has the skill to pull something like that off if he'd have been left to his own devices, and so um, I feel the same. If there was an opportunity to watch this as it was intended, I would 100 um, percent go and see it. And I'm also very grateful that I decided to dig a little bit deeper because I, I really I don't think I could have <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think I could have found anything positive to say about it um without that context personally
1: and fair enough and as, as much as i kind of you know scratch my head at just how much flack this um mm. this film was given because in the grand scheme of things like it, it uh, strange definitely but i wouldn't i wouldn't go so far as to call it outright bad or unwatchable mm. as so many other people have because it there is like this very like, heavy, like, morbid fascination factor to it. Like, because everything about it is so, like, so bizarre, so many different textures woven into each other with the Robes and Hammerstein stuff and the mm-hmm. very, like, 70s, 80s mm-hmm. horror movie aspect to it. Absolutely. And the fact that I, I can look at stuff like this and go, I can easily see how stuff like Wolf Creek or the general kind of, you know mythos i guess of the outback as a yeah. place where you know people don't return yeah especially especially if they're not from australia in the first yeah. place yeah. i i i i dig at that aspect mm-hmm. it's just like fascinating as a production and quite frankly it, it, if if it is going to be like a troubled production the least it can do is be interesting as, a, as it interfered with production. And even with everything that's been said, the fact that the film comes across as this entertaining and this kind of savage in its own way, in regards to how it does portray this very um, this very isolated, you know, Aussie outback mentality, I honestly think that Stephen Elliott should, you know, be patting himself on the back that the film came out as good as it did, all things considered, because I genuinely had a good time with it after I got my head around some of the iffier aspects in regards to, you know, Angie's behavior and certain, you know, gender politic surrounding it. But once I I wrapped my head around that and and kind of vied with this film's very surreal energy, it just kind of clicked. And I'm just like, even without the bigger, you know, racial um, comments, you know, being wrapped around it, there is definitely something to be said for how telling this very, you know, um, almost fascist, disguised as communal living um, approach yeah. that Daddy-O has with the community. And the fact that it's a place so, like, insular and inbred. They had to make don't sleep with your relatives an official rule of the town. Mm-hmm. that kind of thing
0: yeah no i i i totally agree i think for me um the fact that they introduced this really deep-seated racism into the film and then but then didn't resolve it in any kind of um meaningful way for me like that token moment at the end where they go past and see the guy who'd gotten into the van originally um, standing on the edge of the rock playing a didgeridoo, I was just like, yeah, um, sorry. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Right? So you've introduced this idea, but you never, you never um, made the, the, the characters accountable for it in any way. It, never, it was never resolved. We never saw the, you know, in every other film, you're supposed to feel that, okay, they got their comeuppance for their, their ways. I didn't feel like that happened. I didn't feel yeah, like I and- to made to reckon with that at all. It was just something that was casually mentioned and then this token thing at the end. And that's why I was so angry with it at the end. I was like, you had an opportunity here to explore that further and to reckon with it and have the characters reckon with it. And then that's why I say it's very fortunate that I read and, 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 and why I would be willing to see the reproduction of it because I would really hope that, that you know, and especially because he said he wanted Pauline Hanson in there, in that I, I, I I'm, I'm hoping that... He would come good on that promise that I'm going to show you, you know, that side of it. I just felt like that was just washed over, and I'm fairly certain that the producers made sure of that because they probably didn't want any political comment made on Aboriginal Australian relations in the late '90s in Australia.
1: So, yeah, yeah, fair enough. And and going back to that, um, it being a late '90s product. There is one specific thing in here that honestly reeks of in, of studio interference, yeah. and that's the soundtrack. Like, well, like not talking about the Robertson Hammerstein stuff that fit in really well. I'm talking more about the fact that they've got bands like Real Big Fish <laughs> and Boy George and fucking Chumbawamba. Yes. like yes. In, in the soundtrack for this, like it it, it really does reek of that era. Where people really did not give a shit when it came to what needle drops they put in their movies, mm-hmm. like, like it also reminds me a bit of um, what was it? The Digimon movie when that came out in like the early two thousands, and it had like Smash Mouth and real big and and you know real big fish again mm-hmm. and like all these really trendy bands, and it's just like this does not fit. At all, what were you people thinking? Yeah, and that was kind of the same effect here. It was honestly more distracting than the Gallipoli soundtrack because, at least, (laughs) at at least that kind of fit in its own way. That sounded like you know, futuristic war stuff. With this, it's just why the hell am I suddenly hearing Scar Punk in the middle of this (laughs) kind of morbidly twisted movie? It does not fit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yep, yes, it was an interesting experience all around, um and I'm not gonna write it off completely as I said. I'll um reserve judgment hopefully. Um but even if that never happens, I um I understand now at least why this ended up being kind of a confusing film.
1: Yeah. And, and if nothing else, we know that at least some of the people involved got um involved in better things afterwards like for instance Susie Porter who played Angie and who also appears in our next movie
0: oh nice (laughs) 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 yes yes let's talk about the two years later still late 90s uh, film Heath Ledger Susie Porter, Rose Byrne film Two Hands I got a new job and, uh, you could say I'm moving on. Yeah, what are you doing? Everyone down is a fucking hold up!
1: I'm, um... Open your drawer! Open your fucking drawer! Open your drawers!
0: I'm working for a guy. Just doing odd jobs here and there.
1: Right. Give me your keys! Go! Go! Was that you on that down job today? Didn't know you could handle yourself so well. I got a lot of work coming up. I could use another set of hands. Well, I just see a chick called Sharon. Drop a big pile of cash on. How much? Ten grand. Then you come straight back here, all right? Yeah, no worries. It's okay, she'll be back. Just gotta kill some time. Who's that fucking
0: Jimmy? Wasn't he supposed to be here by now? You want me to find the prick or what? Did you see someone go through me stuff?
1: Sorry? Someone stop me fucking stuff! Did you see someone go through it? I didn't see anything.
0: Bando. No. no, I can't see where I am. I haven't got him.
1: Yeah, I'm no two ways about this. If you don't find the ten grand, he'll kill you. What's happened, Jimmy? One of the new guys. First day on the job and he rips me off ten grand. Panda. He's after me. I mean I've heard some bad stories about him.
0: he's alright once you do it. Yeah, we're gonna have to find the prick and do him. Why don't you just go away? What's stopping you? Look at it!
1: Unbelievable! This gun's filthy. Anyone got another gun? This was. Uh, I'm. The more times I see him in a movie, the more I genuinely weep for the loss of of Heath Ledger because fucking hell, yeah. one of the best Aussie actors, yeah. flat out.
0: No, it's. It's absolutely, he, he, it was a, a huge loss, an absolutely huge loss. Sometime um, a couple of years after this film came out, maybe a year or two, and I was in a, a cafe in um, Surrey Hills with my girlfriends and I, and I was sitting with my back to the um, entrance, and there was a bit of a kerfuffle outside, some dogs having a little thing, and I turned around and I saw Heath Ledger sitting there. And I turned back to my friends, head snapped back, and I was like, Is that Heath Ledger? And they just looked at me and nodded. (laughs) And I turned back around, and he must have seen the whole thing. Because but when I turned back around at him and he was just grinning at me, and I just like died. I literally thought, I'm just gonna die on the spot here, and I'm totally okay with that. (laughs) His face just lit up. He was so oh man. What an absolutely charming human being! And I, when he died, I just—I've loved everything he's ever done, and it was—it is—it is—it is very, very sad that we lost him. But fortunately, we have films like this to remember him by. So, what did you think of it, other than how good Heath was?
1: Um, well, uh, sort of reading up on <clears throat> uh, um, like other people's takes on it. I see a lot of comparisons to um, like early Tarantino in mm-hmm. terms of it being like this, like you know, this large story involving like a lot of intercutting, um, uh, uh, well, you know, character arcs involving you know Heath Ledger's character, the two street kids, mm-hmm. and Brian Brown and David Field, which is like the best fucking gangster double act you could hope for like i love the hell out of both of them and like in that mode it's just like perfect perfect yeah Yeah. and but with that said i well i do get that comparison i honestly was thinking more along the lines of um the cohen brothers and how they treated like crime yards especially with the opening with um heath ledger's brother Mm-hmm. As, as sort of like climbing his way back up to the surface and yep. being dead, mm-hmm. and that, and like the whole sort of like how much karma plays into it, like you know, you know mm-hmm. you'll know, you get yours kind of mentality, mm-hmm. which r- reached an interesting point near the end. And, um, at, <clears throat> oddly enough, as we we're talking, um, for with um, whoop whoop in regards to the film that almost was, mm-hmm. I, I've read up on what the original ending for this was meant to entail. Mm-hmm. And I can't find any footage of it anywhere, honestly. But I am honestly quite um, interested in what this turned out and what this would become. Like, the the intended ending... Well, I'm not sure if it was the intended one, but it's the one they used for, like, the televised versions of the film, w- which usually ends up being, like, half an hour longer just for the ad breaks. Um, and, it was, and it was going to involve, like, after... um. Heath Ledger and Roseburn, like, you know, buy their tickets, mm. the airplane tickets. Mm. But it was supposed to be a scene where um, Heath Ledger's brother delivers, like, a monologue that sort of, you know, rounds off, like, the message of karma mm-hmm. surrounding the film. And then it was going to involve, like, this beam of light that shines down on him and him trying to run towards it. But then a bunch of hands just, like, zombie-like, re- like reach up from out of the ground and pull him back down into the earth. Right. Which. Which honestly, I could easily just picture it in my mind, filmed yeah. in the same style. Yeah. And while I'm a little annoyed that I couldn't find confirmation on that, because that sounds like an amazing ending, yeah, yeah. The, the the film itself is like quite, it is very engaging. Like, admittedly, I'm not all that big on these kind of um, like these intercut kind of crime stories, mostly because of likely seen way too many of them through Mm -hmm. watching stuff from tarantino and stuff like that but like even if just on the basis of the actors this is a really damn fun movie this is really damn fun
0: yeah um it's interesting i'd never i'd never made those comparisons between tarantino and i know and i get what you're saying about coen brothers as well from your um Perspective, I I think it's too Australian for me to to draw any of those kind of parallels I see this in its own kind of um, World just because of how Australian it is. I mean those stubby shorts, those
1: Chasing through the Sydney rail system
0: the monorail like everything about Sydney and the King's cross the strip clubs like the cars Oh my god the cars the shotguns, everything, like it's just so Australian that I just like none of that comes into it um, for me at all. And I guess the same thing, what you said about it, you know, I've, I've seen too many of those kind of crime dramas with that cutting between the stories and stuff. Again, for me, it's just, it's the localness, I guess, of it, partly like when we watched um, BMX Bandits, this is this is my neck of the woods. I mean, I didn't like grow up in King's Cross, but I, I went to school in Newtown. So I grew up in the inner, you know, my like teen years, spent in my 20s in the inner city of Sydney. And so I'm very familiar with all these locations. And, and so I had that kind of um, nostalgia for it as well. And so in, in my mind, it sits as this film that's kind of in its own realm in a way. Um, I haven't seen another Australian film quite do that kind of story as well as this film has been done. I,
1: I, I will agree with you on that. And in, in regards to the, sna- the, the nostalgia kind of thing, there is definitely a lot about this that does make me, you know, think back on, like, you know, my very early childhood. Mm. Like, especially the um, the chase scene involving the uh, the radio station crew Because like that is such like late '90s, early 2000s material right there. Like that's the kind of thing that could only exist in that time frame. (laughs) It's just so fucking, it's just so hilarious. Just we've spotted this car like shit, running them off the road. I know,
0: I know. There are so many little scenes in this film like that that are that are just so timed so perfectly and just so brilliant that I like (laughs) um. I probably need to interject here and explain that this, the reason I mentioned this film is because we'd chosen Whoop Whoop and it had Susie Porter and I was like, oh, this is a good excuse to do two hands because this is in my top five favourite films of all time and has been since the day I saw it. I've probably watched it at least 30 or 40 times. It's like a a comfort film for me Like it's something that I can just watch Over and over and over again And always laugh in the same places And always tear up in the same places And just To me It's it's almost the perfect movie Um, I've, I've, I've seen very few Films in my life That have compared to this For me personally So I saw it at the time when it came out at the cinema I was probably about 19 um, and I've watched it my whole life and watched it again for this podcast. So I know it kind of scene by scene, <laughs> like I could break it down for you like line by line because <laughs> that's how familiar I am with it. So I have a very um, different kind of perspective on this. It's, it's 20 years of history between me and this film, and it's, it's what we always talk about. You can't take kind of your personal like situation and experience away from your experience with the film, plus the soundtrack, um, which is Powderfinger. They are also my favourite band. So there's another element there that um, runs through this, and so that opening scene where that with the electric car running underneath it, that just gets me every single time, you know. And at the end, these days, like oh my fucking God, I die inside every time and she's walking up the thing with the gun and she's about to kill everybody in the room and that song starts. It's fucking just brilliant. I love it so, so much. But I'm going to stop myself because I could literally go on and on and on about everything I love in this film. <laughs> One of the main things, I think, um, that really does it for me is that it lulls you into this false sense of security in the beginning that we're kind of dealing with some bumbling crooks, you know? Like these guys are a bit, you know.
1: The BMX bandits again. Yeah,
0: exactly, right? Exactly. And so, and Jimmy's always trying to defend Pando. Oh, he's all right. No, no, Pando's a good bloke, you know? This is running through the whole film. Even though Dee, Susie Porter's character, says to him, I've seen them cut a guy's head off over 800 bucks. Like, you're in the shit. They're going to kill you. And he's like, oh, no, nah, you know, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. They're in their stubby shorts and thongs. They've got their handlebar moustaches. They're playing Scrabble up in their little clubhouse room. It all seems, you know, kind of funny. Give him your keys. I'm not letting him drive my fucking car. You know, and it it just, you're thinking, oh, yeah, like this is going to be a kind of one of those movies. Then they run over the little boy and that scene and they're just walking along and he just gets fucking taken out by this car and the girl standing on the side of the road obviously gone into shock. She's so upset. You can see in her face how upset she is. And then he gets out of the car, picks up the body, dumps it on the side of the road and keeps on driving because he's more concerned about getting his car back than he is about the fact that he's just run over a 12-year-old boy and killed him. Yeah. uh, So you get to um, this uh, point in the film where you're like, oh, these guys aren't the bumbling crooks that they've been sort of set up to be. The serious, like, fucking assholes, right? And that that turning point in the movie for me is, is something that makes it so impactful and why the rest of the movie is is so exciting to watch and why every time there's a moment where even though it's funny, like even the bit where he goes and steals the money out of the saxophone player's thing, to use in the payphone because his mobile phone's gone flat. And then the sax- saxophone payer picks up his broken saxophone and smashes the guy over the head.
1: <laughs> that, that that was amazing. Right? It, it, it probably confirmed for me that anything to do with saxophones in Aussie movies is probably going to be awesome.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so you, then you start getting into this thing that every time the good guys, you know, get one up, that you just, you're just being built up to this main final event where, where she, you know, the young girl goes and gets a gun and takes matters into her own hands and walks up and kills some of the most notorious gangsters in the Sydney underworld because they killed her best friend.
1: Yeah, um, and it, it, um, sorry to um, no, um, get back into the comparison yep. thing, but as far as, like uh, again, the American side of things that this might have taken inspiration from, one of the ones I keep um, seeing is Goodfellas, mm-hmm. and I, I I can definitely see that comparison, especially with that final um, moment with um, between Jimmy and Pando, where mm-hmm. he's trying to pay off the debt, but I think he he has a gun, so they're about to kill him until he just manages to get that money out, yep. and then and, and then once he finally realizes, I paid off my debt. I'm still in with these people. I can't leave, and he just braids. Yep, like th- mm-hmm. that. That really did. That really did scream Goodfellas to me because they both, in yeah. terms of betrayal, like the criminal element, they do it in the same way. They treat it like everyone involved in it treats like all these really heinous things so normally. Mm-hmm. It's kind of terrifying how aloof they are about their own business. Absolutely. It's kind of like games. Like gangster as horror movie in its own way, which, given the scenes with Jimmy's brother, Mm -hmm. they had this weird like pet cemetery, Walking Dead kind Mm -hmm. of vibe to them. It it definitely adds it definitely adds to that. And well, again, it's like you said. Even though like I personally could make a bunch of other connections, like you know, foreign movies, Mm -hmm. there is something very intrinsically Aussie about this. Like even with stuff like Underbelly. And you know, tr- you know, the true crime element, you know, building up the mythos of King's Cross is like this really dingy place. Mm-hmm. Knowing how fucking dreadful lockout laws are nowadays, it is genuinely fascinating seeing King's Cross at a time when there was actual life to it,
0: mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Yeah, I was there, I remember it. <laughs> Seriously, yep, I know, and it's um. I think it also, what I like is how it draws out the unfortunate position that a lot of young people find themselves in, you know, like the working poor. I mean, he's practically poverty stricken. You look at his apartment and his, what he's wearing and what he does for work before Pando comes along and how he makes, you know, his brothers died and how he makes these... Airplanes out of V (laughs) B cans, like, and and that 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 getting involved with someone like Pando seems like a logical decision for someone, like that that anybody could conceive of considering to go down that path, and how sort of just relaxed he is about doing it. There's no real forethought to it. And just how easily somebody who, I mean, he's a good kid, you know, he's a really good kid and how easily someone like that can get dragged into a situation like that and and, and be enamoured by somebody in that way and think, oh, no, Pando's a good guy. Like he's not that bad, you know, like this kind of sense that, yeah, the stuff he does is illegal, but he's just, you know, selling car radios and stuff that he's ripped off from somewhere and you know no one's really getting hurt but really they are. A lot of people are. And either on purpose or by accident, just by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And those those underworld criminals, those underbelly criminals from King's Cross at during that time and in earlier in the eighties and the nineties, I mean, there were corrupt cops. There were like you know, it was it was seriously awful
1: Some um, uh, um correct me if i'm wrong but i could have sworn i heard someone in the film mention kiwi terry at yeah. one point kiwi bob kiwi. So, um, i don't know where i thought it was, <clears throat> i thought it was aussie bob and kiwi terry no no
0: uh, kiwi s- bob s- s- right okay but it, it's still, it's still, I, I look, I've never looked into this film. I've never looked into who wrote it, directed it, where the source material came from, nothing like that. But I can tell you that they were definitely channeling real people, real characters, real um, um, King's Cross underworld, for sure. hundred percent. Just by looking. Yeah.
1: And, 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 and getting back to what you were saying about like, you know, the, the lack of forethought and wrong place yeah. at the wrong time, we have to talk about the actual bank robbery oh because my. that's like, that's the most slapstick thing I've ever seen. Like the guy tries to jump over the counter and just knocks himself out and then it's like, help,
0: help, please. Seriously, the first time I saw that, still, I still laugh every single time, like belly laugh every single time. It is such a funny scene. It's like genuinely very funny. But then they go outside and one of their mates gets shot and they're shooting at the police. Like, it's like, fucking, what is going on here? And they had to and, leave and the, old, the guy behind.
1: Yes, and that's something I really have to give credit to um, the writer-director, Gregor Jordan, who also, if I'm not mistaken, did um, the Ned Kelly movie with Heath Ledger and Orlando Bloom.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, he He's really damn good at being able to balance, like, that really like, slapstick, like, almost Keystone Cops level of slapstick in the (laughs) actual, like, the scenes, like, the bank robbery and all sorts of stuff, but at the same time, like, grounding it in this very, like, you know, crime horror, like, Mm. almost, like, mystical karma voyage um sort of aesthetic wrapped around it. And that's a very difficult tightrope to walk. Like a lot of like Tarantino imitators, like the people who actively set out and go, I want to make a movie that's just like Reservoir Dogs or mm. Pulp Fiction, mm. they so badly most of the time fumble that balancing act, mm. but this one does it like almost effortlessly. Like yeah. it was uh, like these two sides of these uh, of like, you know, the King's Cross crime scene were always meant to be together. Like it makes perfect sense for it to be able to balance out these really like this really like soul crushing I'm stuck here I can't get out of it mentality with the we want to give you $10,000 run them <laughs> off the road
0: and 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 like the way it's set up because you know when when he's driving home with D in the beginning and he's like they're listening to that on the radio I don't know if you noticed that and, and um he goes have you got one of those stickers, D? And she goes, No, Jimmy, I don't. <laughs> it's like, Okay. And then, like, oh, it's just, I, as I said, I could just go on and on and on about all the, all the perfectly beautiful moments in it, the hilarious stuff, and then these, like, just, you know, snap back to reality. Even directly after that scene when they're sitting around and they're like, Can we have a moment's silence for the guy who just got fucking shot? Outside the bank robbery, and then the kid shoots the gun into the ceiling. And he says, How many times have I told you not to play with the fucking shotgun? Like, it's like, Oh my God. I, I die every time. It's just, it's just too good. It's too good. I love
1: it. And, 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 and as far as like how the film treats like, children getting involved, yeah between um pando's uh, um i i think it was pando's kid constantly yeah. playing around with the shotgun this is like really and uh, uh, and like that ending shot of the kid of um helen after she shot down um pando and the rest of them and mm. it's like that fire burning fire behind her eyes her. it's like yep. we, we just we just witnessed the birth of the next pando yeah. pretty much
0: pretty much yeah exactly and so it's a it's a morality tale in its own way, like a modern, you know. But it, it's certainly not bashing you over the head with it. It's 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 kind of subtle in It's
1: way yes, it's- I, I, I I honestly think that like one of the one of the better subtle moments was um, that bit where Jimmy is on the train and like he kind of like shakes awake because of like the Mm -hmm. presence of his brother Mm -hmm. like i've lost count of how many times i've had that exact reaction on a train where it's just like you know you're like half asleep and then just when it gets to your stop you like twitch yourself awake Mm -hmm. kind
0: of yeah yeah i know it's it's yeah as i said i could i could go on and on if you haven't seen this movie Wherever you are in the world, and if you can get your hands on it. it's Actually, it's on iTunes, so it's pretty easy to find. It's certainly um, worth a look. Rose Byrne is so young and so gorgeous. That scene where where he's like, can I take a photo of you? And she's like, oh, okay, and gives him the camera reluctantly, thinking he's going to run off with it because, frankly, he does look like the kind of guy who would run off with that camera. (laughs) (laughs) And then he says, well, do something. And then she just looks at him and there's that moment and it's so drawn out and he pulls his eye away from the thing and they, they're just looking at each other and she's so gorgeous. But you can see in her there's some kind of, you know, not pain but, like, something going Something's on. Something's happened to her. Yeah, she's, she's got something going on and it, it's, it's brilliantly subtle and perfect and beautiful, but anyway, I'm just gonna, we could, as I said, I could talk about this all day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I I really like this, Um, just it's a very pure movie, like, Mm -hmm. uh, unlike Welcome to Whoop Whoop, there's no ambiguity involved, there's no sense that, like, something went off, like, this is, everyone's on full cylinders, and it really does work, and even just in retrospect it is really fascinating looking at this knowing what actors like you know Heath Ledger and Rose Byrne yeah like this being like their their genesis and them going on to do bigger things although admittedly I get the feeling that when um Peter Rabbit 2 comes out well if it comes out in this climate and seeing Rose Byrne in that movie it's really going to make me well like give me a bit of whiplash like what (laughs)
0: Oh, well, maybe she's a Beatrix Potter fan and she just, you know...
1: Well, yeah, I mean, everyone's going to make money somehow in this damn economy, but...
0: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Well... You know, I think nobody's left in the dark about how I felt about this film. I'm glad you enjoyed it too and I'm glad we finally got to talk about it because I've, I've been pretty keen to slot it in somewhere along the way.
1: Yeah, yeah well, well, I sense we're going to be tap- ticking off a lot of like proper classic Aussie movies as we keep going with this.
0: Definitely. And I am,
1: and I am genuinely having fun just looking at just how beautifully Strange and surreal and brilliant art uh, cinema scenes.
0: It, it really is. It really is. But we might take a little leave of absence from it for um, the next couple. What do you reckon? And do some. Let's get into some. Um, I was thinking. Have you seen Twelve Monkeys?
1: I haven't actually.
0: Oh, that's a Terry Gilliam film. Hmm,
1: could be interesting.
0: Yes and um then how about we just go full-blown pandemic and pair that up with contagion yes
1: yes 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 <laughs>
0: um,
1: okay another another excuse to talk about how much i love Steven Soderbergh. i am totally on board with
0: that <laughs> cool all right and then we and then but we should we should come up with another double feature too um so what else do you feel like um Um, uh, I might need to get back to you on that one, but I'll
1: definitely have the time to think of it.
0: Cool. All right. Sweet. Uh, here's a virtual high five. (laughs) Good job. (laughs) All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right, then. Thanks for coming. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) Bye.